Today's teaching text is Ephesians 5:21 through Ephesians 6:9. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The word of God for the people of God. Well, welcome to church. Today, we get to talk about slavery, wives submitting to their husbands, and parenting, and all within 35 to 40 minutes. So this should be a fun one, folks, right? I know that when we said, uh, thanks be to God for that scripture, I bet some of you were sort of biting your tongue, like, am I really... Uh, thankful for this one. Slaves, submit to your masters. Uh, I'm joking around, 
But on a serious note, uh, people have been confused, hurt, uh, or even abused by these verses. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that if that's you uh, and you're here this morning, it makes total sense if you're feeling kind of tense right now and, and apprehensive, wondering what in the world is this guy going to say? And so what I want to do is encourage you right now, even as we're here, um, whether these words have been used to abuse you or whether you're afraid that I'm going to preach something that disagrees with how you understand these verses, to first off, take a moment, take a few breaths, find the places of tenseness. Maybe your shoulders are coming out. Like, What is this white guy going to say I have to submit to right now? Let it come down a little bit. And I want to encourage you, in faith, to come to a place of trust that God's words will bring good news to you afresh this morning. Okay. Now, to start, I want to read a a policy from a grocery store for you. Okay, um, I made this one up, but it, it could have been real. You can put this slide up, okay? Um, this is a, a code of conduct for grocery shopping from Community Grocer. It is important to be here for the community and care for the most vulnerable. When entering the grocery store, please use the hand sanitizer at the front door and wear your mask at all times. Remember to remain at least six feet apart from other shoppers and limit your in-store shopping to 60 minutes. Please limit your purchasing of toilet paper and canned goods to two per customer so there is enough to go around for the community. Stay safe. Now, because everyone here, unless you're two and a half, has lived through the context of this statement, we kind of get it, right? We're we're like, that's not that weird. But as best as you can, try to imagine someone who has not lived through the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 reading this today. They go to Community Grocer. This is on the door as the code of conduct. Hand sanitizer to enter a grocery store? Masks? How do masks create community? They said they want to care for the community. How do masks care for the most vulnerable? Again, try and detach it from the pandemic. Just reading about masks. Why can I only shop for 60 minutes? I like leisurely shopping. It's how I decompress, get all my groceries. What if my chili recipe calls for five cans of beans? How does staying six feet away from people create community? What is going on here? If you didn't know the context, this would be baffling. Interpreting a statement like this without experiencing what was going on in the COVID-19 pandemic is really, really hard. And without context, we could miss the point of the statement entirely. What was the goal in a policy like this? Well, they said it was to care for those who are most vulnerable the immunocompromised, and to reduce the spread of a pandemic, right? That's the goal. That's the purpose. It's caring for the community. 
But if you uphold this policy, when there's not a pandemic, you will not reach the stated goal. If people are wearing masks, if we said today in church, we just kind of follow this policy all the time, everyone's wearing a mask and must stay six feet away, that's not going to do a good job at creating and fostering community life. It'll make true community impossible. So this statement, apart from its context, actually does the opposite of what its intention in the context is. Context is key, isn't it? Context is key. I mean, you know the old real estate adage, right? Which is talking about context, but the context of your house. Location, location, location. What's around your house defines the worth of your house just as much as the farmhouse sink you put in it. Location, location, location. The same is true for reading the scriptures. Context, context, context. So in that vein, I want to explore these words of Paul's for us today in the light of three contexts. Okay? Ancient household codes... Ephesians and Jesus. Those are the three contexts that I want us to explore. Let's start with ancient household codes. Yes, I know, that sounds like it could be on Jeopardy. I'd like to start with ancient household codes for 500. Now, if you just give this text, our scripture that Stephanie read today, If you just give it a cursory reading, or even worse, a reading without any insight into the cultural context from which it was written, these words by Paul will feel just as strange as a dated grocery store COVID-19 policy. Especially if you've read some words of Jesus or other words of Paul, you're going to be like, this doesn't seem like it's going to accomplish what he said his purposes were. Just like you might wonder what masks and hand sanitizer have to do with grocery shopping, you might wonder, wonder, what does slavery have to do with marriage and parenting? Why are these things linked together? Marriage, children, and slaves. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, I know some of you are like, oh, he just used that word. This is my opportunity to take a nap. Don't take a nap. Let's learn together, okay? In the Greco-Roman world, these three relationships were often linked together. All of them had to do with this great Latin word they would use, the, the paterfamilia, paterfamilias, the head of household, essentially. We still use it on tax forms today. But the head of household, which in that case was always a man, had to do with these Three relationships, marriage, children, and slaves, because if you were in any way okay, well-to-do, you would have slaves in your household. This, in that time, my friends, was patriarchy at its finest. At its finest. The whole society and economy revolved around these ways of relating in the household. They believed, similarly to many people today, that as the home went, so goes society. So goes society. If the home was ordered properly, 
then culture and society as a whole would go well. But if the home was out of order, if things weren't in their proper place, relationships weren't structured hierarchically the correct way, then all of society would fall apart. It would put all of Roman society at risk. Now, the oldest male in the family was the paterfamilias, who was the head of the household. That means that even as you had adult children, that paterfamilias still had authority over them. They still were to submit to him. And slaves, as I said, were considered a part of this household as well. Now, during this time, the Romans were were very apprehensive about outside uh, ideologies or cults or religions changing the way they did things. Because for those who it was working for, it was really working back then. For those it was working for, it was working, and you did not want it to be messed up. So they were very apprehensive about, again, outside religions, outside ideologies, threatening the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the way of life that the Greco-Roman society, those in power, could enjoy. Um, In fact, they started to pass laws to ensure that this aspect of the Pax Romana wasn't threatened, that women weren't given too much power, that it was clear who the head of the household was. One of the bigger uh, philosophers who would affect this uh, time was one that we all know, the household name Aristotle. Aristotle's politics could also be a Jeopardy question. But he says this, or Jeopardy category. He says, there's a quote we could put on the screen from him. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children. They're both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children, being a royal, over his wife, a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. So Aristotle addresses these three relationships when he says pertaining to household management. And they're all in relation to the male. They only speak about the male and his roles as master, as father, as husband. And the reason, according to Aristotle, that man exercises rule in these three relationships is based on the order of nature. Males are just more fitting to do this than females. They're more fit for command. Later on, Aristotle says this, but the kind of rule differs. The free man rules over the slave after another manner from which the male rules over the female or the man over the child. Although the parts of the soul are present in any of them, they are present in different degrees. Different degrees of soul for Aristotle. The slave has no real deliberative faculty at all. 
The woman has it, but it's without authority, and the child has it, but it's immature. Okay? And then, again, Aristotle says, for the courage of a man is shown in commanding, the courage of a woman in obeying. So it's very clearly in the culture of the time. It's popular in Aristotle, and it was, it was much more prevalent than Aristotle. I just don't want to spend all our time reading a bunch of uh, ancient philosophers, as compelling as that would be. But even first century uh, Jewish philosopher like Josephus, Philo, they included household codes in their writing as well, arguing that a man's authority over his household was critical to the success of a society. And so when Paul writes about household codes, about marriage, parenting, slavery, he's taking on a cultural form that already existed that would make sense, be clear, as if you had the context of COVID-19 when you were reading that grocery shopping uh, policy. This form, these household codes, this would make sense to the people. Now, the consensus in these ancient writings outside of Paul is that a man is not only justified in ruling over his household, but required to, because his wives, his slaves, his children are by nature his inferiors. So if he were not to rule over them, we know that chaos would simply ensue. The purpose of the codes was to reinforce the necessity of this hierarchical familiar structure which held together the very fabric of the Greco-Roman society. Okay? Stick with me. This is, this is really important. This is actually a massive Paul, a problem for Paul and those first Christians. Why? Because Paul was very familiar with the good news of Jesus, which is that Jesus is breaking down hierarchical walls and inaugurating a new way of being human, a new way of being community that isn't marked by hierarchy, that isn't marked by being dominated by someone and obeying them, but it's marked by love. Jesus says this. That's how you'll know this new community, by the way you love one another, not by having the right people in charge. They're marked by their forgiveness, by their grace for one another, and according to Paul, by their mutual submission. This is this strange new community where people submit one to another. That's not going to work in the Greco-Roman society. Now, there are times where Paul flat out writes this. He writes that the gospel (laughs) breaks down any sort of hierarchical relationships, right? In Galatians 3, we know these verses. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're all heirs, equal heirs, we all get it. Then there are other times where it almost seems like Paul's going backwards or contradicting himself. And there's different ways that scholars have tried to figure this out. Some have said, well, maybe Paul actually wrote that and not that. Or, uh, well, he couldn't have really meant what he said in Galatians 3. That's only maybe once you get to heaven or in the spiritual realm. There's all sorts of different ways. But I think what's going on is that Paul knows that these letters of his, they don't just sort of stay with one particular church. 
So Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. It's not like it goes to the Ephesian church, which is one building existing in Ephesians, and they take it and they put it in their cabinet and they say, when anyone wants to read Ephesians, you can go in that cabinet and read it, but we're going to make sure that you're a Christian first so that we don't get in trouble. These letters were read and then passed on, read by others, read publicly, and guess what? The Christians were always hospitable people, meaning they would, if they saw a Roman soldier who said, I'd like to come and hear what your God has to offer, they'd say, come in, be a part of this thing. Which means, if you were a Roman soldier who wanted to get the Christians in trouble, you could go in and listen to their texts and say, oh, they're committing treason, whatever, yada, yada, yada. Paul knows that his letter is going to get passed on. Paul also knows that the church was a persecuted community in this time. And Paul uh, is not uh, masochistic. He's not trying to make Christians suffer more than they need to. And so he doesn't want them to be accused of insurrection on the grounds of transgressing the paterfamilias, the household codes of ancient Rome. So he writes in a way that fits in with that cultural norm while at the same time subtly turning it on its head and subverting it. There's a lot of ways that he does this. In nearly all of the Greco-Roman household codes, including in Aristotle's, which we read, they were only addressing the ruling males, and they showed those males how to rule. So it would be, how do you rule your wife? How do you rule your children? How do you rule your slaves? They're not going to waste ink or whatever they used to write back then to address the women, the children, and the slaves. But in Ephesians, Paul does. And he actually begins each one addressing the person in the lesser position of power. He addresses wives and husbands. He addresses children and parents. He addresses slaves and masters. He gives dignity and meaning to the person who had little to no power in Roman society without putting the whole community at risk of even more persecution. And so, what I propose is that the household codes do not impose a permanent system of relationships. Rather, they showed believers how to apply the principle of mutual submission in the context of the system in which they lived. In other words, these verses aren't sort of baptizing patriarchy. They're subtly subverting it. Some of you might want to be done already. Stay with me as we move to the next context, okay? Let's go into the context of Ephesians. Paul claims in Ephesians that God's will, the mystery of God's will, is the unity and reconciliation of all things in Christ. Unity and reconciliation is impossible if one party is in complete control of another. 
It's simply not any sort of reconciliation worth celebrating anyways. That's why Paul has to be subtly subversive. See, gospel unity and reconciliation between husband and wife, parent and child, master and slave, isn't possible if one party is completely powerless and treated as if they are property, which is what it was back then. It's only possible if everyone involved has agency and choice. So we get to Paul's, what Paul is saying is God's will. Context of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Now, I've omitted a couple parts that just expand on this verse just to try and get us to the clarity of it. You can read the whole thing in context in your Bible, verses 9 and 10. But for the sake of clarity, highlighting the heart of it, he made known to us the mystery of his will. This is God. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So what Paul is getting at in Ephesians, all of it can be framed in this context. So if it doesn't make sense to creating unity, then we should question what's going on here. There it is in plain sight, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. And later on in Ephesians, we see how God's will for unity is working itself out in real time, including the Gentiles in the family of God. This is Ephesians 2.15. Paul says, again, about God, his purpose, God's purpose in Christ was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, now hear this body language, because this continues on later in Ephesians 5. Body is very important. When Paul is talking about unity, he's talking about the body. Okay, and in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. For Paul, this isn't just a theoretical unity. It's not just a sort of spiritual unity that exists on the other side of life. It has profound implications for people's lives and how they live them today and tomorrow. And then in this, Ephesians 3, Paul says his own reason for writing this letter, which is, shouldn't be a shock to us after what we just read. In reading this then, he says to them, in reading this letter, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made to know people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of, again, one body. Again, when Paul talks about unity, he talks about people coming together as a body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. God is putting things back together. That's what God is doing, according to Paul in the Ephesians. And that affects all of our relationships. That affects how we relate one to another in the church, outside the church, in our marriages, as we parent, even slaves and masters. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul sort of cosmically, poetically, theoretically discusses this reconciliation between God and the world through Christ. And then he starts to work it out practically. And that's where we end up in Ephesians 5. What does a Christian household look like? How does the cosmic reconciling work of Christ play out between a wife and a husband? How about children and parents? Even slaves 
and masters. And so we know that there's this context in Ephesians of unity, of reconciliation, of people coming together. And we also know that there's this image of a body that Paul likes to use when he's talking about unity. He uses it over and over again, not just in Ephesians, in many other of his letters. He talks about a body. So that's the context for these verses about husbands and wives in Ephesians 5. The body being an image of unity. Ephesians 2.15 says God's making one body. Ephesians 3.6 says he's making one body. Ephesians 4.25 says we are all members of one body. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 23, we have this verse for the screen. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. The image that should be on the forefront of our minds isn't so much that of leadership, but it's that of unity, because he's using the image of a body. In other words, a head and a body should be connected. They should be working together, or else there's a problem somewhere. He hammers it home in verse 28, also on the screen. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. They feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body. And then he says, he quotes this in Genesis, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united. The theme is of a body that is united. Be united to his wife, and the two will become one. Two will become one is an image of unity, not of one leading the other. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul is saying that the same cosmic reconciling work that God is doing between Christ and the church should exist between the previously hierarchical relationship of husband and wife. You should realize that you are actually members of one body. Which means if you hurt each other, you actually hurt yourself. It means if one of you isn't free, then a part of you isn't free, because that's your body. Friends, if you have eyes to see, you can tell that this code does not enforce the status quo. It radically challenges and rearranges it. Look at the same way Paul does this with slaves and masters. So first off is the fact that he addresses slaves at all. This, for most people, is a waste of ink. It's countercultural. But he's giving them dignity and meaning in their work. Okay, beginning in chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Okay, so already he's reframing the relationship for a slave in their relationship to Christ. He's, he's giving some meaning here, but it continues on. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. 
serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. Now, some of this might just sound like he is reinforcing the status quo of slavery. He's just giving the slaves some meaning and kind of making it a little bit nicer for them. Not quite so harsh. Giving some Christian meaning to their verse, but to their life. But the immediate next verse, verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Okay, wait a minute. In the same way? You mean obey my slaves with respect and fear? You mean serve my slaves wholeheartedly? At first glance, it might look like some of these verses reinforce and promote the status quo. But if you actually put any of them into practice, if a slave owner puts this into practice, guess what? That relationship of slave to master will no longer exist because they are now serving their slaves. How could slavery actually work if the master has to obey the slave as if they were obeying Christ? How could a patriarchal marriage work if the husband is to treat his wife as his own body? Hint is that it doesn't. And that's the point. This all becomes even more clear in light of the third context, and that is the context of Christ. The context of Christ. Now, as Christians, we ought to read all Scripture in light of the context of Christ. And you could say that we read all Scripture with Christ uh, decoder lenses. As a kid, did you ever get like a, like a sheet with some hidden messages on it? And there's kind of like scribbling over it. And then when you get the decoder lenses and you put them on, you can see what it says. They're like transparent, red, or, or blue sometimes. You, know? you put them on and then you can, whoa, you see what the, the hidden message was. You could see the special message. That's what Paul is doing here. Okay, stay with me here. Without the Christ decoder, it looks like Paul is upholding the status quo. He's not challenging the Greco-Roman household codes or the concept of paterfamilias. In fact, if you look at what Paul is saying through the lens of patriarchy, it might look like he's upholding it. Go ahead to the next slide. So here's kind of the, the message it can look like, Okay. Oh, I can kind of make out what he's saying. Husbands rule your wives, fathers rule your children, masters rule your slaves. Okay, sounds pretty good. And in the the context of patriarchy, you put on the yellow lens, and it's like even more clear. Oh, all right, thank you, Paul, for baptizing the way we've been doing things. Now we can make people feel even worse if they don't submit to us. Now, During the Ephesian context, this would protect them from unnecessary persecution. If a Roman soldier heard this being read aloud and they had no context of Christ, the way of life of Christ, the teachings of Christ, 
they might see it like this. They might think it's a little soft. I heard him say something about loving people. I don't like that. But essentially, it's just a more kind and civilized version of what we're already doing. It's not worth killing anyone. That's too much work. But if you have the Christ decoder, which is the blue lens, put the blue lens on there. Boom, what? Husbands, sacrifice your lives. Fathers, nurture your children. Masters, submit to your slaves. It's totally different. They become challenging words that address the person in power to empty themselves of their power and privilege. Why would they see it that way if they knew Christ? Because Paul has said, this is the mind of Christ. This is what Christ does. Let's read it together in Philippians 2. I'll I'll read it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another which I'm assuming would mean relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters as well, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Well, what mindset is that? Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the Christ decoder. If you remember, Paul begins chapter 5 of Ephesians saying, live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us. There's the decoding word. What does love look like? It looks just like Christ loves. Giving himself up for us. And then he begins our section. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So all of our relationships are to be marked by Christ, by his love, and by mutual submission. So we already know from the first verse in our section that husbands have to submit to wives too. Why? Because it says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, some Bible translators have tried to sneakily get that section away from verse 22. So verse 21, they connect to verse 20, and kind of it is a part of that sentence, but it also is a part of verse 22. There's no verb in verse 22 if you don't have verse 21. Submit there. Basically says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to their husbands, is verse 22. Okay? So you don't have submit even in verse 22 in that sentence if you don't attach it to verse 21. So there's no getting apart that Paul is connecting these thoughts. Philip Payne, uh, a, a scholar, a New Testament scholar, He says this, which I appreciate. He says, True love for one's wife is not compatible with a husband completely controlling her life. Just as true love is not compatible with a master completely controlling his slave's life 
or a parent completely controlling his mature child's life. And love is our ultimate calling. I don't have time to go into it, but if you look at the way Jesus teaches about leadership in the Gospels, it's always about love. It's the last shall be first. Jesus disrupts the social and economic hierarchy of the empire. Paul challenges the Ephesians to live into this new reality of reconciled relationships in a profoundly wise way. Paul is no immature anarchist. He knows how to keep a gospel movement alive. Okay? It's a profoundly wise way that doesn't destroy this minority community in the Roman Empire. Now, Paul and Jesus speak differently, and I think that's interesting. See, Jesus can speak so plainly and subversively about service and leadership, about giving his life away, because he knows he's about to give his life away on the cross. He knows that's his calling. Paul isn't trying to literally crucify a new movement of Christ. They do have to die to themselves, but he doesn't want them to die out. It's a different thing. So Paul sort of covers that relationship of mutuality in plain sight. Those who had ears to hear, those who were familiar with the way of Christ, would know how to read what Paul was really saying. But those unfamiliar with Jesus wouldn't find fault in these teachings as claims to insurrection. Okay, do we get this? In the context of Jesus, we understand that there's no place for hierarchy in the kingdom of God. And so St. Paul could write in this way, subtly subverting the oppressive structures of the Roman household. This is the same way today, by the way. There are folks who have no real desire to submit their lives to Christ, who use these texts that we just read, giving thanks to God for, as an excuse for abuse. There are parents who, quite frankly, are miserable parents, downright cruel to their children, in no way actually practicing the way of Jesus, but they force submission by their children by saying God says they have to submit. They're missing those Christ decoder lenses. And this breaks the heart of God. There are husbands and pastors who have used these verses to cover up and enable abuse within marriages and churches. And that should make us sick to our stomachs. I have a friend um, whose husband was being verbally and at times uh, physically abusive to her. And she was on staff at Harvest Bible Chapel in the suburbs of Illinois, Chicago. And um, she went to the pastors for counsel. She went to the elders for counsel. And based on a poor reading of Ephesians 5 and also Colossians 3 and 1 Peter, they told her, with no stepping in to help to seek reconciliation with her husband. And she did, and he continued to be verbally abusive. 
when she let the pastors know that he continued to be verbally abusive and that she was now going to seek separation from him for her safety, they fired her and they kicked her out of fellowship in the church. This was nearly a decade ago. This isn't a recent event. This was nearly a decade ago. I've only met her in the last couple years. And she is still desperately trying to recover a healthy relationship with Jesus and with men. And who can blame her? These verses, uh, they can become ammunition for those who are not submitting their lives to the way of Christ. These verses were a favorite of the anti-abolitionists. Why not? I mean, it says kind of point blank, plainly, see, Paul says, slaves obey your masters. And in a culture where not everyone has access to the whole text, and you can only see that verse, you could see why they might love it. Obey your masters. Whole denominations in the South were using this text to back themselves up. Clearly, slavery is baked into the created order and something that God ordained. They would have preferred Aristotle to some of what Paul actually has written once you explore the context. And friends, this breaks the heart of God. Paul is showing those first century Christians that a new way of relating is possible. And because of Jesus, it already exists if you want to participate in it. There's a way of relating and existing as a family and as a community that is without dominating. It is without hierarchy. It is without abuse. And Paul's invitation is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Understanding the text in this way uh, doesn't sort of make it where we don't have to submit then. It's not like it gets rid of the act of submission. doesn't mean wives don't still have to submit to their husbands. It just expands submission. So husbands also are submitting to their wives, parents, children, reciprocal. Submission done right reveres Jesus. It lifts him up. That's what it is to revere something. It says submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Revering up Jesus. It brings him worship. Abuse does no such thing. So what's a healthy definition of this word? Submission in closing. Voluntarily yielding in love. And this is not, I wish I could say I made this up. I like it quite a bit. Um, but this is what one of the most used Greek lexicons, one of the essentially dictionaries for uh, Greek words for the, I think it's hypotasso. I don't have it written out, but the word submission. This is what they say, voluntarily yielding in love. That was a lot that just happened. But this is the heart of it. This is the invitation in these words for all of us. 
is an invitation to voluntarily yield in love to God and to others. So as you go about your relationships this week, is there one or two places you could practice this kind of submission in a healthy way? Could you take this definition with you? Voluntarily yielding in love and practice that with someone you disagree with. Someone who frustrates you. Someone who perhaps you are in a position of power over. Could you practice voluntarily yielding in love to them? This is the way that Christ cancels our debts. This is the way that Christ saves us from our sins. This is the way Christ reconciles us to God. In the garden, after praying for some time, quite anguishing prayer, Jesus utters these words, not out of defeat, but out of love. Not because his hand is forced, but because his heart is moved, voluntarily yielding in love, Christ says, not my will, but yours be done. The rest of the story is history. Not my will, but yours be done. Amen. May it be so of us. You show us a way that in our limited imaginations doesn't seem possible. How can submission, how can voluntarily yielding in love actually bring about new things? Actually bring about reconciliation and healing and new life. Lord, in the places where we want to believe, would you give us faith? In the places where we want to believe, but doubt is reigning, would you give us faith? May we become a community that voluntarily yields in love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.